Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's an eye roll or whatever, it's like the part about it is to get into your own story. What story am I making up about the eye roll? If I'm in my own secure play, and, and, and secure again, when we say secure, we want you to really realize we're talking about it like a verb, where it's an action. It's not, I'm a secure person at all times. It's that in that moment, if I'm feeling in a secure state of mind, I can be in tune to myself and my own internal working models, as well as my own experience of the moment and yours and Sue's. So I could know that that eye roll might be your way of like you're feeling that sense of threat and activation in your body. And then I can be more aware of myself around that experience in you. Instead of just make it all about you, you know your eye roll. And now I'm making it all about you, 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 rather than I really have a hard time around eye rolls in general. I don't know what that is. It just activates something in me. And I'm sure that's not what you're saying, but it really does activate me. What are you saying? Like, like aware that an eye roll activates me rather than you suck for eye rolling. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everyone. It's fun to be back. It's been a little bit of a space. It's been a minute. We took a nice break. I mean, I guess it was a break. We've been working our butt off, but... Totally. We've been very extremely busy, but we have tons of updates and yeah, I wanted to really just dive back in. Maybe we should let folks know kind of some of what we've been up to and where our thinking has been and where it's going related to some of the stuff on attachment and podcasting and where do you want to go? Where do you want to lead us? Well, I guess to start what we're working our butt off in is very exciting. We're making super good progress in our book on secure relating. And so it's top of mind, isn't it? It's top of mind for myself clinically when I'm working with people, top of mind with my life. So it's like really fun to dive into it, isn't it? Like trying to secure relate with me. I tell you the <laughs> most interesting thing has been in writing together <laughs> that at one moment, you know, we're heady and we're explaining and teaching and then we can drop down and like, oh, no, this is actually what it means between us. And when we, you know, hit a snag or something like that, it's like, okay, wait, what is this? You know, how is this really like, I mean, it's, it's really interesting, but I am hoping that it's going to imbue the book with real life. You know, this is not somebody on some mountaintop acting like they have it all together, but more of like that you and I walking together as we figure this out and apply this incredible, incredible resources and rich science that is out there. Bringing it to the real world. And it is fun when we're talking about where we get to dropping into this idea of like, wait, where am I right now with you in this moment? And it's so funny, you, you said to be writing about it and then stop and do it. Whether it's, I'm anxious about a paragraph I'm writing and I think you're critical of it and yet you're not because you haven't even read it. That's what happened recently. That was hysterical, <laughs> yeah. right? Like I had 
written a bunch of stuff and you were reading it and I'm walking wasn't, away. Though. <laughs> but you weren't, right? Right, right. But you had an expression on your face and I'm like, oh crap. I knew, you know, like it was so funny. It was like I had these interpretations and I in the end, just really chuckled about it because it's like the real life application of it. You weren't even reading it. And uh, no, I was stressing out because something, I don't remember what I was reading, but I was really stressed and trying to do something. And and then you projected into that, that I was criticizing you, which is terrible. And I'm so sorry that you feel that way. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, somebody waking up from a dream and being mad at their partner. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, even in this, the funny thing is I wasn't even thinking you were criticizing me. It was actually stirring this Oh God! I thought what I wrote right there was so good, but maybe it wasn't. You know, it was like right, more your was, insecurity. Yeah, it was hitting my insecurity. I thought it was really good. I was waiting for this like expression of "Yes, you nailed it," and and instead, I didn't get my anticipated you know, that a girl. You know, because I felt really powerful about what it written. Instead, I got this look that was like consternation. It was like, and I'm like, oh crap, and I walked away. And it was like, it made me think of that. It was two seconds later that you wrote and said, by the way, I haven't even read anything. I just chuckled to myself because I'm not always in that space. Sometimes like I couldn't care less what you think because we're going to go back and forth. But you know, that time I'm like, man, that was a great example. And so I loved that because it made me walk away and go, okay, and apply what it is we're writing about. And I feel like that's what we're being challenged to do constantly, not just tell, but really know what it is and use it. And it takes mindfulness in us every, you know, to do it, doesn't it? That's right. And, you know, these things show up. So we're going to be focusing specifically on internal working models because that's the key concept really about attachment and what brings it from infant attachment to adult attachment, all the cool things. So we're definitely going to do that. But we're particularly vulnerable to moving into some of our dumb narratives that we're holding that we don't know in the absence of information or in kind of blank spaces. So part of what happened is I was being really quiet because I thought something was happening. And so I was like contained and, and then focused on the thing I was focused on and you came through. So there's like the absence of information in some ways. And then you, as you leave, you said, oh, you said something like that you were disappointed, but you had to run. Yeah. And that's when I, that's why I texted you. I was like, wait, I haven't even started reading <laughs> Yeah. And then you were really positive. I love this example. So I got I it. I loved it. I totally loved it. But to the internal working model part. Okay. So there was a little bit of unknown, but also you had, we don't normally do this when we're all resourced and we're feeling good. Right. right? You wouldn't right. necessarily have done that. So you had written, you were a bit anxious about that. You were also anxious about being like, like, in other words, you weren't in a perfectly green regulated state. Nothing was wrong, but you just had a little bit of stress to you, which was enough then to tip us over into doing those kinds of negative assumptions. Right. It was just my whole experience was heightened. You know, but as we were talking about, like, so as it's heightened our internal working model, especially what comes up in insecurity really comes to the forefront. And that is, oh my gosh, you know, and as we go in to talk about this, for those that go, okay, I think I know what internal working model is, or for new listeners are going, what the hell are y'all talking about? Let's talk about what an internal working model is of attachment. Might be a reminder, but when we're talking about that, we're talking about what goes in from our early attachment experiences, our relationship with our early caregivers on throughout our life impacts the way we were wired. It impacts the way our brain was developed. It impacts our assumptions about ourselves, about those in our lives, about the world. It's like an internal working map, right? Right. So Bowlby actually was the one, you know, the original, the, the originator of 
attachment theory, which, by the way, came out of this kind of repressive psychoanalytic drive theory, meaning it was much more about the inside the person, right? So if you imagine psychoanalysis, I mean, I know you know, but just sort of setting the stage where the, the analyst is focusing on your insides, on your internal world, and you're focusing on your internal world. Well, this was kind of a pushback to that attachment theory. It was like, wait, there's something going on between the two of you, which therapists were conveniently like, no, I'm just the, I'm just the surgeon here and this is the patient, you know, or whatever. Many of us have come a far away from that. But even the idea of intrapsychic world was a psychoanalytic term. And it's a static idea. It's like there's a world in there. And so Bowlby, in using internal working model, he actually got it, he got the concept from somebody who had been studying mammals about how animals remembered. And it was more about their body. To me, it's really interesting that he wanted to use those terms instead of things like cognitive map as something that's static or any language that was a photo. That in the term internal working model, like working. So, right, that's the operative word. It's the operative word. So basically it's something that is dynamic and it changes and it elaborates as we move through space and time. And as we move through different relationships and experiences, like it's not a static thing in general. I mean, just to bring back our original example, in general, feel pretty good about what I'm writing, feeling pretty good internally, feel fairly secure, highly much more activated because of stress and deadlines. And so internal working model is more activated by the relationship right now between you and I. And so it's very impactful on the relationship between us. It's not just what happens within me static. It's the relationship that's happening between us. And one of the other things was that they thought of it before as, you know, when you really break it down, it's like, you know, little kids will begin to babble if you kind of have a camera in there or whatever. One of the things they're babbling about is just they're narrating their day. They can also like narrate, if you tell them a story, they'll narrate it. So one idea of it was that it was thoughts. Internal working model is conscious thought. Like I am worthy or I am unworthy, kind of deeper down, but still like in the form of a thought. And some of what the new neuroimaging, it's not that new now, but a couple decades, is showing is that it is not about language and it is not narrative. Some of it is conscious but the bulk of an internal working model really is, like Freud was right, Freud, Bulby was right. Well, Freud also had a, a biological, well, right. you know, neurological background. But Bulby, he really was onto something and he, and he was prescient, basically, that it's embodied state. So most of an internal working model is unconscious. Maybe another example where the, it's just like a body reaction, like an internal working model might be where you feel it. An embodied reaction, yeah, I think coming back to the unconscious embodied is one of the most important aspects of this because we're not aware of it when it's being activated often, but we're responding to the embodied experience of it. So maybe an example of somebody that has an internal working model that emotions are fairly threatening. Oh, that's right? a great example, yeah. So because of early experiences around emotionality being maybe rejected or not attuned to and emotions feel they're not rewarding well beyond that even well good point they can be threatening like too many emotions in the room threatening right wait and, wait and so can you slow down so why would i conclude that so if your internal working model was developed throughout 
early childhood where your caregivers to begin with, maybe because of their functioning, couldn't connect with you and your emotions. Your emotions overwhelmed them. Your intensity overwhelmed them because of their internal working model. They could have maybe as you emotionally express your need for nurturance and you're exuberant and too active and that overstimulates your caregiver and they work to shut you down. Like that's too much, you know, but your, your, your loved person tries to stop you, either gets angry or withdrawn. So if you have this need and you're wanting this exuberance, you're feeling this emotional expression and it in fact then gets thwarted and rejected. And in fact, that caregiver, instead of meeting your needs, goes away, rejects you. You can feel how that hits in an embodied way. I mean, I love this example because it's so painful, but also just so normal. So just taking half a step back, you know, we're born, we have this biology, our stress response, you know, is constantly going off. We're being comforted. This is something you had just written, you know, like what brings your caregiver closer and what pushes them away unintentionally. So, you know, as I'm crying because I'm starving or think I'm starving or because I can't tolerate any kind of discomfort and I'm responded to, then I'm not thinking anything. These aren't anything about thoughts, right? It's just my body begins to anticipate that when I'm in distress, somebody's going to be there. So, so let's even like slow it down just a second. So imagine being that infant and it being an embodied experience. So you've described the elevation and then this caregiver picks you up and soothes you. And you could feel just in Sue's voice how the nervous system then would just calm down. Relief. Feel like There's a feeling relief. of relief. So I have emotional expression and it is rewarded in a sense of I have comfort and relief. And that experience over and over again signals to your body that that emotionality and the other person is very rewarding and that that's literally wiring you exactly it gets linked with pleasure because there's a relief of distress you know we one we begin to believe that our distress can be helped you know there's somebody out there for us and then also we begin to associate even specific people especially that lady over there <laughs> with the boobies, love her. <laughs> she provides me a lot of relief. So I'm going to orient specifically to my caregiver. And what's also cool is once, well, let me slow down because I like this going really slow. So we're having these biological stress responses, hopefully that get responded to, or if they don't get responded to, we're learning about that too. But then that gets repeated and repeated and we're growing and we're figuring this out and our brain is an anticipation machine. So it's trying to calculate very quickly and learn and learn and learn very quickly around, like you said, what brings people closer? Do I need to mask? Do I need to yell super loud? <laughs> That's when we would talk about learning. I love going this slow and really bringing the embodied part because oftentimes when we talk to people about what they've learned, they think of it in their head. They think of the cognitive understanding. And then we believe, we really believe as adults that it's about cognitive understanding. So if you explain something to somebody, then that will be, means they will learn. They'll learn that about us and then they'll change, right? We know that doesn't work right? And so this is why it's about the internal working model inside you. You mentioned, let's go back to the, the infant who's crying, crying, crying. But instead of the caregiver coming closer and rewarding, instead you imagine a scary face, an angry face, a push away face, or a, 
you know, a hard, intense pickup, not once or twice, but repeatedly over the period right, of relationship. Right, because we've all, we've all done all of those things to our kids. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Don't freak out. Like, yes, I got mad at my kid last night. This is a pass fail. You, you, get, you get to be a 70, 70%. <laughs> That's true. And you're fine. Good I think at 40% at one point, but... <laughs> We but love it, the idea of good enough. Good, it just has to be good enough. Good enough. But if over a consistent period of time, for example, if you now can imagine as in like being the infant and imagine seeing the scary face and imagine the removal of affection, then just the experience of that emotional intensity, that in and of itself feels horrible because if you don't get it taken care of, then you're highly elevated without some sense of reward. So there's multiple things that are being learned there. One, emotional expression sucks. Having needs sucks in the most professional sense of the word sucks. <laughs> but then that's the, that's the clinical term, the clinical term. But then if you imagine that, oh, I need to bring that person closer. And the more I emote, the less I get. Well, then emoting does not bring a reward. It, it, we have to do it, but it brings anxiety. So there's the threat. And this is the threat that becomes unconscious. This is the threat that, oh, when I cry and I have this intensity, it's going to lead to something bad, but it's a biological innate thing for me to do. But now it feels threatening to even experience that. And to your point, nobody thinks that way. Exactly. Like we're, we're creating a narrative that doesn't exist for this little infant. Bolas talked about the unthought known. So it's not a cognitive thought at all. It's not even yeah, Say that again. The unthought known. The unthought known, yes. Yeah. It's a, that's Christopher Bolas. So it's funny because now we're narrating it, but the way that we explain it is that we're learning before we even know we're learning. There's no cognition, coherent cognition. There's no narrative, anything happening. That's what we mean by our nervous system is being wired in. And then, like, let's say that same toddler learns to come up to mom, but not put their arms up and just kind of turn their back, but kind of be somewhat near. That would be an example of now it's in their body. I can get a little bit close to her and not have her kind of pull her feet up. Like I'm imagining her sitting on the couch or something. She doesn't pull her feet up and away from me. She kind of stays still because I'm not threatening. I'm not overtly needing her. And I'm looking like I'm really happy, which makes her happy. So I've, I'm learning these things. If you don't approach directly, look good, look happy. <laughs> so these things are being wired in. This is what we're, you know, you kind of try this and you try this and you try this, you figure it out that that is what works. So then that gets wired in. And then, and then now we fast forward to say now we're five years old. Right. And when you say wired in, you really mean literally just to be concrete here that neurological wiring, the firing has happened. We've mentioned this before, Dan Siegel's what fires together, wires together. So we are learning like pathways towards what emotional expression feels like and looks like. It's impacting our brain development, as a matter of fact, the size of our amygdala. It's impacting the resources we need to be able to learn these patterns. So, and even though we don't remember, it's unconscious. It's in our memory. It's in our implicit, it's in our internal memory. Our body remembers, right? Our body keeps that and is responding. And you're not, this isn't metaphorical. So internal working models are not a metaphor. They're a real thing. And so she's saying it's in your body. We're going to link a couple of articles that are, have some neuroanatomy in it. We're not going to go into that only because I think it'll make some people's eyes cross. And, but those of you that are nerdy enough to want to know that stuff, it's going to be in the show notes and it'll show you, it'll document from all kinds of cognitive studies and neuroimaging 
that what we're saying, which is that internal working models, literally, you can see them in the body. I mean, that's kind of a weird way to say it, but I'll let them convince you because they're better at that because I'm not a neuroscientist. And it's not just one part of the brain that it lives in. It's systematic. And they're also able to show that animals, for example, have internal working models. Part of what that means is, you know, they're not thinking in narrative thought, but boy, they know, you know, certain things and they remember based on early experience, things to do and things not to do related to different members of their species. The other really important concept of internal working model is that it starts with primary one, two people, but it doesn't just stay there. So a lot of times one mistake about attachment is that it's about your relationship with your mother. And if you're, you know, dismissing that you're going to be dismissing for the rest of your life. You get what you get. You don't throw a fit. Yeah. Right, right. That's but not that actually, fortunately, and this is part of what fires us up, is that this is all changeable. And no matter how geriatric you are <laughs> or how young you are or what your background is, that this, our brains continue to change and grow. That's why we're invested in teaching about this and learning ourselves, frankly. So it starts out with the dyadic, you know, with the one or two people. But what we know now is the internal working model begins to generalize. And it gets much more elaborated. It begins to include friends, teachers, coaches, significant relationships. And so it gets more and more complex, less brittle. And then it also does a thing where it categorizes. So let's say mom was warm, but dad was uh, super playful and just kind of lost interest with the emotionality. I hate that because it's such a gendered example, but it does set up even without gender as a construct in the world, it sets us up to, okay, people that are like dad, you know, these generalities, i.e. men or guys with big bellies and beards or whatever, that the brain just doesn't care about that stuff. It just knows somebody like that, I need to be this way with. And somebody like that, I need to be this way with. So we could just flip it and say, uh, mom was the one, well, you know, I might get along really well with women that don't remind me of my mom or men or, you know what I mean, people that are genderqueer because that doesn't remind me of my mom. All that's good. I might, doesn't activate me. But somebody like this, you know, that, that ends up hitting that category, it will stimulate my implicit memory like that old representation is going to be more active. I love what you're saying. So it's in different relationships different associations that you have that have been consistent enough, it's not everything, but consistent enough to form a pattern of association that goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And that it is also about different experiences. And that is where socialization really gets impactful, right? How are we socialized around emotions? What is our experience of threat or reward around having emotionality versus rational thinking versus high expressiveness? So these things do matter. We get rewarded to those that learning happens and becomes part of our more global internal working model. Totally. And just if we go back for just another second, so we're saying that it starts out with the biology and the stress response system patterning. Well, first of all, it just starts out with the body and the stress response system, period. Like you're having these individual experiences. Then over time, it begins to pattern, you know, look for patterns. So then you begin to have patterns. Then you're going to show behavior based on how your stress response system is going. And that behavior is what, like Mary Ainsworth noticed with, you know, strain situation and things like that, that there's behavioral, behavioral, um, manifestations, manifestations. Well, what's a normal way of saying that? Oh, thank you. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Behave, you, keep- <laughs> you know, just people act, people act right or they don't act right. <laughs> so um, these little kids would basically have these pattern behaviors where they run to the parent or they avoid the, you know, all the things that the strain situation was measuring is the outward expression of the stress response system, right? Right. They become predictable. Right. So, but we still don't have good narrative stuff. We're still a little bitty, but we're showing our behavior. And then very slowly we begin to form language. And this is what we talk about with attachment representations. That word representation means it's being able to hold something in mind. So this is where we begin to form story. So the story over time might be something like, I'm not worth picking up. Like we begin to create elaborations in whichever way it goes, right? But like that story, I'm not worth picking up, is a safer story than, no, I'm good, but I'm screwed because I'm sitting here crying. You know, like it's just a natural thing would be, it must be me. So there basically there's a representation, then there's language, and this is how we begin to develop stories, stories that we can actually get to about ourselves and about the world. And some of those stories are not conscious, or at least mostly not conscious. And then some of them are very deliberate, like keep your dirty laundry in the house, right? Don't talk to other people. What goes on in here stays in here. Those are also representations about relationships, that, but those are the really the kind of the low-hanging fruit. Those are the ones that we know that we have, we can name. But notice by the time that we got there, did you see how long it took me? <laughs> it like, it's like from the bottom of the brain stem, it goes a little higher, then a little higher. Finally, by the time it gets to the top of the brain where we have words and we can represent them and we can speak them, you know, that's way down the road. So by the time that we have words, one other quick thing is that we confabulate. So let's say, I just know I eye roll when somebody cries. Let's just say that. Then I'm going to try to make that make sense. It's like, well, crying is weak and, you know, you're not supposed to put your dirty laundry out. And this person's doing their dirty laundry. That's wrong. To me, I don't know that I'm having a particular reaction to that because I think that it's normal because the world, you shouldn't show people your weakness, right? So we're trying to separate out. You have a model that's actually giving you a physiological squirt of good, bad, or, you know, run or go closer. And then we create a story to make that little squirt make sense. That's what I'm trying to get to there. Did that, ever, did that make sense? Yeah, I think it, that, that was a lot, but I think it all made sense. And the last point really, I think, brought it home. And that is that that element of like, okay, I get the squirt. I get the, what we mean by squirt is let's say like a, a, a rush of cortisol or stress where, you know, we get this warning sign that there's this sense of something going or on. Or even in, a squirt of oxytocin. Well, good, good point. Stuff. So you're just like some neurotransmitter squirt is what we mean by squirt. Just like, <laughs> yeah. But so you have this rush of an experience inside of you that is based on the learning and the feelings of the learning that is of happening. Your, yeah, of your, lear- of your unconscious learning. Of your unconscious learning. But we don't always, we're a bit self-referential, right? Like we <laughs> don't. <Yeah. laughs> so we, when we get that, it tells us what's normal, what's right, because it's familiar to us. So we then tell the story based on, our own personal experience of what feels threatening and what's not. So now you're eye rolling. Oh, I never eye roll. <laughs> <laughs> I've never gotten in trouble from you by for eye rolling, never I swear. once. <laughs> Check out the book. You'll find out that's not true. But <laughs> no, no. But so like, yeah, if somebody eye rolls, right? It's somebody's being emotional and you eye roll. You're, I love that example. You're making up the story. It's because 
the emotions are weak. And then you can point to a lot of what you learned in society around that. But to tune in, and this is where we get the connection between really knowing your internal working model and how to really bring that into relating securely. And that is to recognize that actually that internal threat around emotions that created that eye roll that said, ah, I can't feel these emotions. And you're eye rolling. That's a dis- when we kind of give dismissing characteristics that which we all have, by the way, I eye roll as well. We have dismissing characteristics. What we're dismissing is that emotional intensity inside of us. In this case, we don't want to experience that. And so we're going to eye roll and like, ah, that's ridiculous. And now your point is that we make up a story about that. And then we believe our story and we can well, justify even, it. Even, even that's ridiculous is a story. But that's true. Yeah. And and yeah, so I think that what what you're saying is that story then makes it we're not examining our story. We don't even know we have a story. We might not even know we eye rolled. But if somebody points it out, it's like, but well, it was ridiculous, you know? <laughs> so I think what we're working to do is like help people slow down and include their own body's reactions with any interpersonal interaction that and saying we're self-referential, meaning we think what we think is right and that what we're feeling is right and that everybody's probably feeling it. And if they're not feeling it, there's something, it's just a normal human thing. But in order to really get this down where that we're secure relating and, and we'll do a separate thing on this, but it really includes both people. So if you're giving me feedback about eye rolling, which I never do, there's all these stories that can go in on that. And what I would want you to be doing as you're giving me feedback about eye rolling is being aware that you're having your unique reaction to whatever I just did. Right. Like if, if you're eye rolling. Like somebody else might just eye roll with me, right? Like, oh, right. Oh, right. That's not so threatening, right? Right. But to experience an eye roll, what does that activate in me? If I'm in a more secure kind of internal space where I'm feeling confident in you're myself. Feeling and, the love. Yeah. Yeah and the stress is not high around me because we have deadlines, et cetera, that eye roll is going to be, hey, what's going on? Why are you eye rolling? What did I say that kind of threw you off? Or another way is like... Or it'll just be Wait. endearing and cute. Yeah, I was, gonna, I was just <laughs> going to add the endearing. Or it would be the endearing kind of like thing, oh, okay, that's really activating for her. Oh, uh, you, you don't know, must be like doing. That. You're talking I, I, well, like a therapist. Okay, let me try. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't. kind of do think this way. <laughs> I know, like that's true. I have to, right? We're so nerdy that <laughs> right. So it's true. It's true. But what I'm saying is, is like if instead of like, how dare you eye roll me? Right? right. 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 Well, I mean, I guess let's go back to the initial example. Right? You weren't necessarily eye rolling, but you were at the computer and you had this look, which I thought I was having privately. In my defense, <laughs> I didn't know anyone was looking. <laughs> So let's just say that was an eye roll. Like you read something, you eye rolled. Like if I'm... I'm immediately feeling defensive, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not in my more secure place. A, I can make it about me like, oh my God, she didn't like it. I'm like, she didn't even bother take you. Like I can make it about you or I can make it about me. I could do, depending on my internal working model, I could do all sorts of things with that. But if we're going to use as an example of secure relating, which... I feel like we sort of engaged in this in the real way, you know? Oh, yeah, and that, that's true. That's right, because we went away. It's like, okay, wait. Like, I feel good about that paragraph. It's fine. But I had to come back into myself and going, being aware, and this is what our point is, whether it's an eye roll or whatever. It's like the part about it is to get into your own story. What story am I making up about the eye roll? Even if it is an exasperated, I can't believe you wrote this stupid paragraph, which it wasn't, but let's just say that's what you're feeling, which you have the freedom to feel, Right. If I'm in my own secure play, and, and, and secure again, when we say secure, we want you to really realize we're talking about it like a verb, where it's an action. 
It's not, I'm a secure person at all times. It's that in that moment, if I'm feeling in a secure state of mind, I can be in tune to myself and my own internal working models, as well as my own experience of the moment and yours and Sue's. So I could know that that eye roll might be your way of like you're feeling that sense of threat and activation in your body. And then I can be more aware of myself around that experience in you. Instead of just make it all about you, you know your eye roll. And now I'm making it all about you, 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 rather than I really have a hard time around eye rolls in general. I don't know what that is. It just activates something in me. And I'm sure that's not what you're saying, but it really does activate me. What are you saying? Like, like aware that an eye roll activates me rather than you suck for eye rolling. That's a wonderful example, Anne, because it makes me think of the germ thing too, that you, that you do that really well. You're like, uh, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm really sensitive about germs, you know, and she'll come behind people, you know, and like clean up versus saying you slob or whatever. Like there's something, again, it's endearing, but it's also like you're aware that your cleanliness level is, doesn't necessarily match everybody else's. It's not right or wrong, but you have a certain level. I mean, we don't even sometimes think that. It's like, we just think it's right. You just clean this way, that's the right way, versus no, this is the way that makes me comfortable. Actually, that's a, probably a good segue into the kind of just everyday, real world stuff. So if Anne's saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I've got to come back here because I just have this weird thing about blah, 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 blah then she still gets to clean up and make herself feel comfortable. But the other person knows you a little more. You're saying something about yourself. But you're also, it is a boundary. You are kind of saying what you've done made me a little uncomfortable and I'm going to come behind you. So I think these are just two quick, two quick good examples that you just gave us around, the, again, the both. Can I add to that? Because I think we said something earlier that I want to come back to because it's a really, really important point. And that is that we're talking about this learning not being intellectual, embodied learning that we have. If my embodied learning, let's just say it's around these germs. I'm, I'm not a germaphobe. I'm like talking about, I'm not, all right, just want to say. <laughs> oh, you're totally not a germaphobe. That's no, actually no. why I said it. Right. It's because it, you really have it's, a very natural cleaning level. You know it. But it's a great example that let's say... Oh, no, that's not a good example. <laughs> like what I'm trying to represent is that so often, let's go back to the person who's learned that feelings are threatening. And the point I want to get back to is that when our internal working models, we realize that ours and those that we love are more ingrained, they're more embodied, then we're more patient and generous with it. Because then it's not tell you I need you to be more emotional and you won't. And I keep telling you I want you to talk about your feelings and you won't. And no matter how many times I tell you, you don't even try. That makes me feel unloved. It pisses me off. Like now I'm intellectually telling you to be different because I need you to be different, but I'm not aware that the emotional expression of some, I'm talking to this person who's grown up not attached to feelings or if feelings are threatening if somebody's saying to that person, be emotional, hurry up and feel, feel, I can so, and I'm getting, first of all, I'm going to get mad at you because you're not in touch with your feelings. So that's going to activate insecure relating in that person. And then you're telling them you really needed a change to do something that I need or that the other person needs, but is actually embodily very threatening to that person. So saying to somebody to be emotional or to sit with my emotions when it's actually threatening, if we're not generous enough to recognize that that's not an intellectual decision that can really impair 
the way we feel with one another in a more secure way. And, you know, part of what makes me think about this is just how difficult it is, first of all, to be two humans trying to relate or three or four or how many, you know, group or families that you've got all this going on under the surface. You know, most of us don't get this. And even when we do know it, we still do it. So there's all this complexity. And I was imagining somebody listening. And what you were saying was really right on about if you're really wanting somebody to do something that they don't know that they've really shut off, that they can't do. It's not a cognitive thing. They can't just turn on and go, oh, here, let me tell you the feelings, you know. Because actually most of the time what happens is like, okay, I'll tell you. What do you want me to tell you? Like they're, they're not holding stuff that they're not telling. It's, it's a different experience. Yeah, they're not being stubborn. I like to no. say that in sessions. Like somebody's not being stubborn no. because you no. ask them to do something, they really are struggling. And they yeah. might not be aware of that though. But I'm, I was just channeling the people that are listening that are in the other person's position that really do want, want and need and legitimately need the emotional expression and the closeness that the other person doesn't know they're not giving. So I just wanted to sort of represent for a second, it's not that you have to stuff your feelings or that your feelings aren't legitimate. We're not saying, oh, look, man, your partner had these avoidant parents, so they've just kind of zipped up, and it's not natural to them, it's not easy, just live without it, not at all. But it's more about, like, because of all these complexities and everything, you know, we can't do this right this second, but we are very interested in continuing to expand, like, what does that person do in that moment? And again, that's some of what the book is going to be about, but kind of looking ahead, we're going to really want to deep dive into some of these things that are just so hard. The idea is we're not going to leave anybody out there hanging. So if you're aware of your needs, things like that, don't worry. I know before, when we talked about this a long time ago, there was a lot of people that were saying like, but wait a minute, you know, just because they're more dysregulated, you know, I'm always the one having to do all the work and that kind of stuff. So we have lots of thoughts about all that. Today, though, as far as internal working models, I think that we've had a good representation of that. We're going to keep talking about it for sure, because this is just so on our minds. And mainly what we're working about is like, how do we translate this rich science, decades, decades of science, into those practical things. So maybe, Anne, do you want to think of something like how do we wrap this up in a practical way for the listener that they could do something right now? So in your example, it's a great one about what you can do right now. So the answer would be instead of for that person out there that's saying, but I have emotional needs and being with somebody who doesn't have access to that, one of the things to do is to be aware that your desire for that emotional needs is a good desire. It's not something to shut down. It's part of your internal working model. And think about how you go about trying to get those needs met because that might reflect more on your own internal working model. Do you feel incredibly anxious when that person's shut down? Do you feel impatient? Do you feel maybe bad about yourself? Oh, that's great. That's because that's what we said earlier, right? It's two people. Two people. We might be in a place of being secure relating in this moment, again, as a verb would be, I really get that the emotional shutdown is there for a reason, and yet you still don't give up your need and desire for it. But what we're asking you to do in this episode is to focus more on your internal working model, to get to know yours. How do you ask for those emotional needs? You know, one thing we said earlier, which I think we can end with, and that is we tell these stories, be curious about your stories. We'll give you some broad ones. Be curious. What is your story around emotions? Are they good, healthy to be expressed, bad, threatening, unnecessary, you know, or 
is rational thought the only thing that we should really value? Or if I turn to get some help, I think people will want to be there and help me? Or why should I bother? They're just going to interrupt and make me slower. These are some ways to start to ease into what are your what are your stories? And to realize that our beliefs about many things and our values are actually based on our internal working model. They're not based on facts of this is the way the world should work. I'm so glad that you went there because I was thinking I didn't mean I didn't want to leave people hanging with like, oh, and we have all these great things to say. We're not going to say them now. So that did feel like you resolved a you know, something there. So a resolved attention. <laughs> um, and it's a great example. And I think it's really good. And I love you ending with the idea of going inward. And we should all have that capacity for sure. And so, yeah, I, I won't, don't need to elaborate on that. But would you, you want to say just a couple of things about also some things that we're thinking of going forward? We don't have it totally mapped out yet, but just some, some things that are in our mind um, that we're going to be talking about this season, this year. Yeah, we have some exciting things. One of the things is that we want to continue to add to the conversation we're having now as we're talking more in depth about secure relating. So we want to talk about more how to put these kind of things into action in your everyday life, and we will. Also have some real excitement about stuff coming up. We've got episodes on dreams, what those represent, and we are going to talk about the feeling of awe. And I'm really excited about that. They're kind of a little related, but the experience of all. And, you know, I can relate almost everything back to what we're talking about right now. But yeah, we're going to talk about climate and, and our relationship to this overwhelming stimulus out there. I'm very excited about that. And it's likely going to be a little bit of a series. And you know how we like to get into our series, mainly because we get in a topic and we want to dig and dig and dig. And this one is, you know, we talk about secure relating in a way of how do you, if we think about security, being able to count on people or count on things to be okay, but we're in a world where there's so much stress and you mentioned the climate, we mentioned racial tensions, we like there's so much stress out in the world. How do you get inside of yourself and relate to yourself in the world in a secure way when there's so much out there activating our insecurity and activating our stress response and heightened because it's an important, important time to be looking at that. So I'm yeah, excited totally. about that. That's really good. And in that vein, we've got an interview coming up with someone who focuses specifically on trauma, systematic trauma, about how unhealthy systems or discriminating systems or violent systems that we might live in affect us. So that's going to be great. And then also there's going to be one on neurodiversity and that's cool. Super excited about that. That's been a long time coming. And a bunch of other stuff up our sleeves. So, but we just wanted to, since, we, since it's been a while, we thought we'd give you a little peek there. We'll keep you posted on the book. It's going to be a while, unfortunately, just because publishing takes forever. But you guys, if y'all tune in, you're going to get all kinds of stuff live as it happens. So if what we're sharing with you makes a difference in your life, you feel like you're gaining so something from this take the time to pass it on to somebody else. That's our goal out here is to be able to bring this wealth of information that we get from all these scholars out there in the world to people far and wide to make a difference, to add to the conversation of security, one conversation at a time. So pass it on, rate and review us. And if you also feel so inclined, think about becoming a Patreon member. Just go to the back of the website and go to therapistuncensored slash join. Therapistuncensored.com slash join. 
And also we want to give a shout out to, we've had a sponsor from the, from the beginning that we love, that we use every day called Athletic Greens. I drink it every morning, totally love it. And in particular with all the stuff about gut health, I'm still learning about it. I want to know kind of what to do and stuff like that. But this is my answer to all the trying to feed my biome. <laughs> so it's not one dose, but it's it comes in powder and you shake it up. It's real easy. And do that every day. And it's been great. And we appreciate them. They're sponsors of the show. Athleticgreens.com backslash therapist uncensored. Slash therapist uncensored. Slash. What did I say? Backslash? Backslash. Oh, we, had God, a, yeah. we had a listener correct us on that. Very appreciative. Yes. <laughs> Um, but really, and, and any of our other sponsors that we've mentioned, it is because of them that we can keep this free and accessible to everybody. So you're actually helping us out if you will just go check them out and see if there's anything there. And we almost always, there's some deal that by using our link and things like that, that you can get. So, okay. All right. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you around the bin. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 